0: in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean.
1: And thank you, Rachel. And welcome, everyone, to a new edition of In All Things. And my name is Dean Weaver, as Rachel said. And uh, I'm here with a good friend of mine, uh, Bob Garment, who's going to be joining us uh, in just a few moments. And uh, you learn about the EPC's new chief uh, parliamentary officer. He's the person that keeps us on the tracks and doing what Presbyterians love to do, which is making it decent and in good order. And and with Bob, (laughs) a whole lot of fun and um, just really solid stuff. So, welcome. Uh, if you've never been in, in All Things before, this is a podcast uh, by the Evangelical Presbyterian Church for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But our hope is that we are kind of broadening our audience to others who are listening in to learn more about not only the EPC, but what God is doing in his kingdom, both here in the United States and around the world. And we have typically highlighted EPC leaders, sometimes in the office of the General Assembly, such as we're doing today, sometimes pastors or uh, global workers, people who who are involved in the advance of the kingdom uh, in their local communities or around the world, and sometimes uh, EPC thought leaders, authors, uh, and people who are influencers. And we have great discussions around the table where we hope to uh, encourage the church in our primary purpose, which the EPC's mission statement clearly states is that we exist to carry out the Great Commission. And so hopefully all of these conversations help us point in that direction. Uh, Our podcast today is uh, brought to you by, and we're going to be doing this over the next number of weeks, uh, some of the presbyteries of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. If you did not know, the EPC now has 16 Presbyteries. When I first joined the EPC back in 2008, uh, we had eight Presbyteries and we've now doubled in size. And the good news of that is is that except for the Presbytery of the West, which is just enormous in terms of landmass, all of our Presbyteries have gotten a little bit smaller so that hopefully there's a little more connection. Uh, The better part of Presbyterian polity is actually that our connectionalism is relational. And our accountability, therefore, is relational. If you think, for example, of Matthew 18 and the whole accountability that's built, that our book of discipline is built on, it's principally relational. And so when you have smaller presbyteries and you get the chance to know each other well, the idea of holding one another accountable. Um, sharing best practices, encouraging one another, supporting and strengthening one another all grows uh, when you have that greater uh, sense of focus in a presbytery. And we have three new presbyteries as of starting this year, which you may not have known of. The presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic has multiplied. Don't you dare say they've divided uh, in their presence or they will give you the business. They want you to know that the gospel doesn't divide, it multiplies. And so they are a very missional group group of people. In fact, the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic had their own full-time missional mobilizer to help their congregations carry out the Great Commission in their communities, uh, their Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that same DNA is being imparted in the three new Presbyteries that they have multiplied into. And those Presbyteries are the Central Carolinas, the Coastal Mid-Atlantic, and New River Presbyteries. And so you might want to get on our website, which is epc.org, and do a little bit of exploration there and become familiar with our new presbyteries. You'll see there who their new stated clerks are, who their moderators are, the chairs of their committees, what their geographical bounds are, and, of course, the congregations that are inside of those bounds. And so uh, why not go to epc.org and check out uh, our new presbyteries that are the Central Carolinas, Coastal Mid-Atlantic, and New River Presbyteries. Now, having said that, our guest today is someone who is um, a lover of not only the Bride of Christ, the church, but particularly the larger church. Uh, Bob Garment has served as a pastor in the EPC for just a couple of years now. I'll let him tell that story. I don't want to tell stories out of school. But I think the thing that uh, I hope you'll hear is not only as a pastor for about the last nine years of his ministry life at Covenant EPC in the Tallahassee area of Florida, but for 30 years, I believe our longest standing of any presbytery or the General Assembly, for 30 years, Bob served our denomination as the stated clerk of the Presbytery of Florida in the Caribbean. So if I'm the stated clerk for the denomination, Bob is the stated clerk for that Presbytery and he did it for thirty years and he has seen and done a lot in those 30 years and I was privileged to be there with he and Mary as they celebrated his retirement and then of course uh, it wasn't but a day after he retired that I called him and said so Bob uh, you still have a lot of gas in the tank we could use your help Uh, Jerry I and Mary has taken a call um, to be the CEO of InFaith and I could really use some help particularly in terms of polity and governance and Bob is uh, not only awesome at that But he's a pastor at heart and is also a certified pastoral counselor. And so that skill set, as we begin to apply our governance, um, is a huge asset. And uh, he, um, um, I think maybe this is maybe telling stories out of school a little bit. He told me he was going to pray about it and and talked to his wife and then uh, i thought that would be a couple of days and the next morning i get a phone call from him and he said why i I talked to mary and i said well how could you possibly have prayed about this so quickly and he said well i got home and i i told mary what you were asking and she kind of rebuked me a little bit or chastised me a little bit because she said well bob we don't have to pray about that this is the epc this is our family of course you're going to do this and i immediately fell deeply in love with mary uh for (laughs) for for doing that so um and it's been a huge gift Uh, bob started out as our interim chief parliamentarian and we've taken the title interim off and he serves the entire epc as really our expert in terms of our book of order and so bob welcome to in all things thank you good to be here. All right, so I've told a little bit of your story, but why don't you rewind the tape back further? Um, How did you get called into the ministry? Where has the Lord caused you to serve? You had a a trajectory that brought you into the EPC a few years before me, but we all have stories of how we ended up in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Why don't you give us a, a brief flyby of yours?
2: My call into ministry came soon after I came to Christ. I was in college and realized that I grew up in a church that was a typical, what you call a liberal church, where they taught Christian virtue, but no gospel. And when I was confronted with uh, the concept that nobody really needs a God, I realized I don't have one anyway. So I declared myself an atheist, and like many college uh, students, I majored in drinking. And my life started to spiral down until finally my brother and his wife, who had gotten into an evangelical church invited me to a gathering where I heard the gospel. A couple of days later, after a lot of wrestling, God conquered me. And uh, I became a follower of Christ. And it was within the next year, actually, that I started feeling a sense of call to ministry. But I wasn't over the rocky ground yet because when I went to the pastor that I knew growing up, who was a very loving man, and I said, well, how do I prepare for the ministry? And he directed me to his alma mater. Which is a very, I don't know if I should call it by name, but it's a very liberal seminary. It wasn't when he went there, probably. So I went through three years of fighting for my faith in a liberal seminary. And uh, finally. And that's the
1: common story of a lot of the mainline seminaries. Yes. Um They all started out uh, pretty orthodox and solid and then have this trajectory of a leftward uh, hard shift over the years.
2: So, really, the launching point of ministry for me was the week of October 4th, 1976 because that was a Monday and our first child was born, Mm. Sarah, and the following Saturday I was ordained. Mm. And the reason I put those two together is because it has always been how I measure priorities. Family is first, church ministry is second, and I worked in the mainline Presbyterian church up through the reunion of the two churches and I realized the reunion didn't help. It hurt. Things got worse. And then somebody sent me a newsletter that was published by a small EPC congregation, I think in, uh, in uh, Homa, Louisiana. The pastor there, I think, was also a reserve chaplain. And I cannot remember his name at all. I'd have to look it up. But that was a life-changing little mimeographed hmm. newsletter. And we looked at it and said, this looks like it was custom made for us. And so we, uh, we went through all of the futile process of trying to be dismissed from the mainline church to join the EPC. And in 1984, they graciously allowed us to leave with our Bibles and nothing else. And uh, And that's
1: about three years after the EPC was born. I mean, we're born in the latter part of 81, so that's just about three years later.
2: And uh, we worshiped in a synagogue for a while because they were more gracious than our uh, fellow Presbyterians had been. And a little sidebar is that the church that we left uh, was eventually sold by the presbytery to become a mosque. And it was, since we just remembered uh, September 11th, um, it was the mosque where Muhammad Atta worshipped while he was taking flying lessons before flying into the Twin Towers. There's
1: too many tragic ironies to even begin to yes. mention here. Yes, it's a little overwhelming.
2: When we entered the EPC in 1984, we were the first EPC in Florida. Uh, back then, the Presbytery of the South had recently multiplied into mm-hmm. uh, it, to the Presbytery of the Southeast, and I don't remember what all the others were, but uh, eventually Florida asked to be... Uh, a separate presbytery, and that was in 1990. By that time, uh, Howard Shockley, one of the patriarchs of the EPC, in my, in my view, had already surreptitiously led me into stated clerk work like a sheep to the slaughter.
1: A lot of our stated clerks kind of look back to Howard as uh, this kind of uh... Prototype the mentor the kind of standard bearer. I mean, yes. And he was what was so wonderful about Howard was is that he not only had a love for polity, but not for the sake of polity. He he saw that polity was a means of helping us accomplish the mission that God Mm -hmm. had given us, and he was always looking for. I mean, before the word missional polity was a term, that's what Howard was doing. He was trying to figure out how our polity could serve our churches to help with the carrying out of the Great Commission.
2: Well, we would tease Howard because every year his presbytery would send more overtures to the General Assembly than any other presbytery. And the reason for that was they originated a lot of times with Howard who said this polity is restricting us or is not putting us in the right direction. It was his missional goal that made him the uh, the conductor of great
1: overtures. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something, you know, I think the average person, you know, just goes to their congregation and they, they're they there to be a disciple of Jesus and to, to be a part of worship and a, and a growing fellowship and community and do outreach. They don't think about things like missional polity, right? That's not something the average follower of Jesus thinks mm-hmm. about, cares about, even knows anything about. And yet, kind of invisibly, behind the scenes, if that isn't happening, then the church's mission trips on itself and it falls and it disconnects and there's all kinds of things that happen. It's the reason why we're not congregational. We actually understand that that connection is good for accountability, it's good for best practices, it's good for mission, particularly for mission. And a servant like Howard, who was ahead of his time, but really implanted a lot of the DNA of how we do polity in the EPC. Those who knew him give him credit. Those who didn't know him need to know um, what a a legacy and impact that he's left on so many of us.
2: Howard was, I think my closest friend in the EPC in spite of the fact that he tricked me into being a clerk. (laughs) He asked if I would help as a recording clerk at a meeting and, uh, I did that for a few meetings, and then Howard, because of he was trying to plant a church and the plant was not taking root, he had to step aside for a while and I took his his place in southeast presbytery uh, and Then when Florida uh, became a separate presbytery, of course, I started from scratch there but uh during that time, when I was working with Howard, we went to general assembly together we He was living in North Carolina, we had a uh cabin up there, and we drove to St. Louis together, and while he was there being recording clerk, he got a little episode of Vertigo, and he said, well, you're going to have to take over for me as recording clerk. It's it's always this, well, just this once. Just this once. Yeah. And that's where I moved from my appreciation for the work of polity in the presbytery to the way it works in the larger denomination, because you're sitting at that table, and you're seeing how all of it is made,
1: and that's one of the reasons why, Bob. I'm sure you've thought about this. Is that uh, at the end of my interview with the search committee, question was asked me, Dean, how has the Lord been preparing you for this role? And I got, I got very weepy, like you. I, I started getting real weepy, and I realized uh, just all these images started coming through my mind that I realized, you know, God's been really preparing me to do this all of my life, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the role you are in now as our chief parliamentarian, God's really been preparing you for that all of your life.
2: Yes. You know, the scriptures talk about the great cloud of witnesses around us. And I've been involved in the work of the church for so long that it's more than a cloud. They're they're real people with real faces. And each one of them has deepened my love of the EPC. And it really, I always said I don't like administration. But I like the people that need the administration. Mm. If that makes sense,
1: it makes a ton of sense because as I've I, as I've watched you in this role now for for a number of months, I remember when Jerry I took the role from Ed McCallum as our assistant stated clerk, and with that came the chief governance mm-hmm. officer, um, because Ed was really our chief governance officer, and I remember Jerry. Saying how nervous he was to try to take over for Ed because Ed was so good at what he did, and everybody loved him, and he did super well. And then you know now you have Jerry who brought a whole new skill set to bear and just did phenomenal as our assistant state of clerk and chief governance officer. And I remember when Jerry told me about his call to In Faith, I thought to myself, "Oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, I know how to do polity. I I appreciate it. Um, I understand it. I could." I could even teach it, I think. But what Jerry could do in an hour would take me three. You know, he just was so good at it. And I, and I thought to myself, I had this simultaneous feeling of, how am I going to ever replace Jerry? And, you know, the, the first thought you think is, I've got to find, you know, a, a Jerry 2.0. I've got to mm-hmm. find someone who's does it, all the stuff that he did. But then that person would be saddled with the burden that he, Jerry was saddled with when he followed Ed. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Jerry could no more follow Ed than someone else could follow Jerry. And I can only attribute it to the Holy Spirit, Bob, is that at that very moment when I was panicking, God gave me your name. And I just, I immediately thought of you. And I, and it it wasn't so much like, oh, you need to be Jerry 2.0 because Jerry did a lot of other things that the assistant stated clerk did. I was like, nobody knows polity of the EPC better than you. Nobody gets our ethos and our culture better than you. Nobody has a, a love for the larger church as as you do. And the thing that I love that you bring to bear that is unique to the, the governance part of this role, because of course now we have Michael Davis as our assistant stated clerk, but that's less of a governance role, and, and he'll continue to help us with collaborating toward those uh, gospel priorities and making sure we live into our mission. But on the governance side of things, what you bring that is different than than Jerry and Ed is that you're also a pastoral counselor. So you're a pastor and a pastoral counselor. And, and, and Ed's a lovely pastor and Jerry's a lovely pastor, but they're not pastoral counselors. So I've watched as you've counseled people <laughs> in terms of polity, and it's been beautiful because you're taking these, these, these rules, but you're helping them you're serving them by, by kind of almost a, it's like a counselor governance combination that is completely unique. And I watch your skill set and the fact that you said to me, I don't love administration, but I love the people who need it. That is very evident in the way I've seen you carrying out your responsibilities so far.
2: I, I go back to the comment that you made about yourself and Jerry, that when you realize you were coming into a new role, following someone, who was well-loved and, and quite capable, that you had that moment of panic. Because I can remember sitting next to Jerry at the recording clerk's table the year that Ed retired, and and everybody was giving him this great going-away celebration, which which was appropriate, and I could tell that Jerry was, he was having his moment of panic. And I remember saying to him, and he remembered it too because he, he echoed it back to me at one point, I said, you're not replacing Ed. You are coming in as yourself. You need to make this job your own because God has brought you to this point because of your skill set. And he he thanked me for that and said that was really helpful. And so I thought, well, if it was helpful, when you called me and said, okay, you're in, I think I pretty much stood in front of my bathroom mirror and gave myself the same talk. <laughs> But in a way, if you think about it, if you don't feel a little bit of panic yeah. about taking a larger role in, in the life of the church, it, that's not a good sign. I think the panic is understanding that when we are working for the kingdom of God uh, and working for the betterment of the people of God, that is a holy and extremely serious responsibility. And if you go into it thinking, oh, this will be a, a cinch, you're probably going to fall flat on your face. So right. just speaking to your previous panic, take a deep breath. Yeah. You're doing well. But one of the things you, you talk about, what do I bring into this? I don't claim to be an expert on polity because just recently uh, my friend Dexter Kuhlman pointed out something to me that I had missed and given wrong advice on. Hmm. And I said, well, that's an odd place in the, in the book of government. Why is it there? It should be in this other place. And he says, "Well, I don't know, so I've made myself an annotation there. But what I do bring in is, I am so horrendously old that I can remember the history of why that's in there on a lot of these things. Mm, mm. And sometimes I give too much information. You know, I had a clerk ask me, "Well, what is this thing about a minister coming in without credentials?" And I said, "Oh, that's the Jacob I- that's the uh, Johnson Eye clause. Do you know why it's called the Johnson Eye Clause?" No idea. Two ministers who came out of the PCUSA, and they would not transfer their membership. They just took some liquid paper and blotted them out of the Book of Life. And at that point, our original polity didn't know how to address that. And so we filed an overture, and it it never got that title put in the (laughs) Book of Government that would allow that. And what I'm finding is if I can tell people where it came from, they no longer see it as an impediment to their mission. They see why it is a help to yeah. the greater mission, and when it's not, then we look at it and we see uh, how flexible can we be, or do we need to make some changes? But the history helps.
1: Well, my undergraduate degree was was in history, and so I have a deep appreciation for, you know, the old adages: if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yes. But learning from your history, understanding who God has made us to be, valuing those things doesn't hold us back. It it gives us context to shape us as we move forward and I am so grateful because I'm like you I look in the mirror and thinking how in the world can I follow a Jeff Jeremiah who served so faithfully for 15 years and you know there are people who I think still have some of the same expectations of me that they had of Jeff and I'm different than he is and he has his strengths and I have mine the same way you know Jerry was different from Ed and and you and Michael are different from from Jerry one of the things I have valued in this role is having guys like you and now Bob Stauffer as the director of National Church Health. You know, Bob was ordained at the very first EPC Presbytery, and having that history kind of on my one shoulder, whispering in my ear, saying, this is where we've come from, this is who we are, this is, this is why that clause is there, this is what its purpose was, and this is what we're thinking. And then on the other shoulder, I've got a Michael Davis, who's this young guy who's got all this great ideas and energy and he's got the voice of the whole next generation and he says things to me that caused me to realize that I'm an old guy now mm-hmm. and I go you know I just I'm not thinking that way but I need to think that way if we're gonna if we're gonna pivot and really not just welcome and embrace but empower the next generation which is what's got to happen for the church to survive and thrive I need to have his voice not only speaking in my ear but also leading so I feel like with with guys like you and Bob on the one side, and guys like Michael on the other side, I've got I've got this nice blend of seasoned experience and and kind of young wisdom and energy that I think is going to help me as the stated clerk, you know, move us help move us forward. And you know, my job is to do the will of the assembly. What the assembly determines, my job is to help make sure that gets carried out. But to have guys like you and Michael on either side of me uh, helping me with that is, uh, is a huge gift. So,
2: I, and, and I think the illustration you used earlier about remembering Bart Hess, he's talking about the Bible in on one hand, the newspaper in the other. Michael will come along and, and, and he and his generation will say, what's a newspaper? <laughs> you know, my iPad in the other or my phone in the other. And the body of Christ is always trying to communicate the gospel to a culture that is always in flux and acceleratingly so. But it's also important to have people who remember, how did we get to this point? How did the church grow from its early beginnings to where we are now? And how do we continue our mission in a realm of new ideas and new social assumptions? And that needs the younger people. Yeah, But you still need the uh, those of us, the, the patriarchs. <laughs> I usually say old geezer, but my wife says that's not a good term. Who can remember where we were. And how that now translates through an incoming generation of leadership to move us forward, but you need both
1: but the thing I value so much, Bob, about guys like you and Howard Chockley and Dexter Coleman and others is that while you guys have that history right and that that heritage, you know sometimes the older generation clings to things in a way where they're threatened by those changes and they resist them, and so you find a younger generation. Kind of chafing against that tradition to try to get those new adaptations done. But that's not, that's just never really been the culture of the EPC. Guys like you who've been around for a while are not only welcoming of that generation, you're, you're willing to hold those things loosely so that we understand not just where we've come from, but they enable us to move forward to where we need to go. And I've never felt like in the EPC, there are a lot of sacred cows, or there's a lot of things that you know we've always done it this way and that kind of thing. Even even the old geezers, yes, <laughs> uh, I'm only using that term because you you said it first, and I'm it's getting a theological there. term. Yes, yes, and I'm getting there quickly. Even that group is exceedingly welcoming to the change that is necessary uh, in terms of contextualizing the gospel, while at the same time holding firm and fast the faith passed down from mm-hmm. our fathers and mothers before us.
2: Some of my most satisfying interactions when I was state a clerk with Florida Caribbean Presbytery was when a, a new minister would come in. A young man was newly ordained or had just planted a church, and he wanted to sit down with me and lay claim to a, a day's conversation about how does the organization work? What do I need to know as a pastor? And it was a two-way conversation because I said, well, what do you want to accomplish as a pastor? What do you see as the mission? And I, I took delight in, first of all, that he cared about the polity, but also because I got to kind of translate it from just cold administrative rules into how can this help you with the mission that God has put before you?
1: So you've kind of bridged into my final question here, Bob. I wanted to ask you this question directly, and you're saying it, but I want to call it out so that people who are listening kind of have a bookmark here. What do you want people listening to know, especially those who are from the EPC, about how polity actually serves the mission of the church and why it's important? What, what wisdom could you share with people who are leaning in and listening so that they might understand something that's really inherent to being Presbyterian, particularly an evangelical Presbyterian who's reformed and missional, which mm-hmm. is what we are.
2: I think about this sometimes and think what's a good analogy, and there's not a single analogy that works. But if you are trying to drive down the interstate and your accelerator is just great, you are anxious to get there, you still need a roadmap and you need a steering wheel. And polity keeps us on track. It's the difference between rapidly getting to a destination and having a, a wreck. It's not there to restrain us. It's there to protect our course so that we get to the goal. And that's the, kind of the approach I try to take when someone asks me, well, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? And the his, sometimes I have history to say, well, here's what goes astray if we don't have these these guidelines in place But where do you want to get to? And let's see how that can be done. It's really a guidance system. It is not there to restrain anything missional. It's there to equip our missional efforts and make sure that we get there in a way that's going to have a lasting presence, that's not just going to to crash and burn.
1: And in our system, we have the ability to update and edit and, and change our polity to help us if we find it's not serving our mission like a Howard Chockley, we can come back and find ways to so that it does serve the mission. Yes, and one of the things that
2: has changed over the years in the EPC is a, a greater collaboration, if you will, with presbytery-level state clerks and also ministerial chairmen and, and others to where they can come together and share ideas. And so it's not just a, a single presbytery overturning to make a change. The people who are actually out there using our polity to accomplish mission may come together and say, this would work better if we could do it this way. Mm-hmm. And some new ideas come through that. I know some of the, of course, when Howard was with us, when the state of clerks would come together for fun in a state of clerk kind of way, <laughs> we would all decide it would be better if we could do it this way. And Howard would go write the overture and put it up there. Yeah, uh, And that collaborative process, and that's why I'm so glad that, that Michael's on board, because that's his strong point is, how do we get all the parts to work together? Polity changes. Because polity is not scripture. Polity is the means by which we apply scripture in our confessional standards to meet the mission to which God has called
1: us. Oh, that's a perfect place to end. Um, I wish I could restate exactly what you said. Pol- I think it's recorded. <laughs> that's right. But that, that last <laughs> sentence, uh, we need to capture that and put that out there somewhere because that's the big idea. Polity is basically a servant that helps us capture the mission and apply uh, the the gospel uh, in our churches and um I, I didn't say it as well as you did, so I should have just stopped while I was ahead. My
2: wife always says, oh, that was good. Repeat that. And I say, I don't know. I wasn't listening. So we'll have to listen to the recording. All right,
1: well, I'm going to go back and listen to that recording so I can write that down because it was so good. It deserves to be on a plaque somewhere, and I need to remind myself of it. Bob, great conversation as always, uh, and we'll have you back since you're in and out of the office now on a regular basis. We'll have you back one day here in the near future and pick this conversation up and carry it forward. Sounds great. All right, super. Well, thank you, friends, for listening in today. I hope you learned a little bit more about the EPC and got to know someone who is really special in terms of serving the church. And I hope that you'll, of course, share this uh, with others. Uh, Share it with your pastor. Share it with the clerk of your church. Uh, Share it with the um, clerk of your presbytery. (laughs) Share it on social. We we appreciate you getting the word out. Um, And the word is getting out. We're coming up on our one-year anniversary here uh, in the next... uh, couple of months and um, we're hoping to get to about a ten thousand download spot and we're closing in on that but we need your help to help share and get the word out about this podcast so if you can help us that way that would be a great gift to us and we think a blessing in terms of the advance of the kingdom well my friends as we draw this to a close we finish with the good word from god's word as we always do from colossians chapter one you see the sun is the image of the invisible god The church that of course is our blessed savior jesus christ and it's in his name my friends that i bid you until the next time we are together grace and peace
0: thank you again for joining us on behalf of dean and the entire team we hope you will join us for our next episode of in all things for more information about the evangelical presbyterian church including a directory of local churches online resources and much more visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.